Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ledger, hosting conversations on lending, finance and technology with the brightest minds in the world of working capital and beyond. Our usual host, Elliot, is on holiday this week, so today's episode is hosted by me, Callum Dunbar. I head up the sales and marketing team here at Dance Race, and in today's discussion, I'm joined by Receivables Finance publisher and speaker, Michael Bickers. Michael is the founder and director of BCR Publishing. In our chat, which lasts around 30 minutes, we take a whistle-stop tour of working capital over the past two decades, up to the pandemic. We also discuss the importance of community in the world of lending, and Michael gives his thoughts on the future prospects for the sector. Enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of the Ledger podcast. It's a beautiful uh, autumn day here in the southwest of the UK. Um, It's the 4th of November. The US is locked in a historic election battle. Um, The the election result is really on a knife edge right now. Um, We're going to be talking about politics shortly or economics shortly, but I want to first introduce our interviewee for today. who is Michael Bickers, the founder and director of BCR Publishing. So Michael is, and I think this goes without saying, one of the the best connected uh, men in working capital um, across the globe and is uh, our must-reads for the industry and the events and must-attends. We were uh, lucky enough to be at the Arfix event um, earlier this year, just before um, coronavirus turned the whole world upside down. Uh, we learned a lot. We met some interesting people, um, which always happens at BCR events. Um, but hi, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, hi, Callum. Thank you. Uh, thanks for that uh, uh, very nice introduction and your your kind words. Um, I'm not sure that everybody would agree with them, but <laughs> they're quite quite generous. And uh, yes, we are. You know, I, I do like to think that uh, myself and as a company, we are we are well connected and. Um, that uh, has been built up over 25 plus years of, of working in this sector. And, um, you know, it's one of the great things about working in this sector is that you meet a lot of people, a lot of different people, and it makes the whole working environment uh, very pleasant. And it's one of the things I've noticed about this industry because we've dipped into other sectors as well, like venture capital and leasing uh, in the past, a long time ago, actually. But this is a particularly friendly industry and people do like to talk to each other and exchange um, ideas and thoughts and uh, it makes a a pleasant working environment. I think you're absolutely right. I've certainly noticed coming into the sector myself how warm and welcoming um, the reception has been and we're going to talk in a a little while about the importance of community and about networking particularly in the the kind of post-pandemic world. Before we get there, I wondered if you could give just a brief potted history of BCR publishing. You know, I know that BCR and Dance Race, we certainly go back a long way as well. Yeah, sure. Um, in fact, myself and Dance Race go back before BCR. BCR, BCR uh, started in 1993, but uh, your your chairman, uh, Anthony Abson, I've known before that. I knew Anthony uh, when I was working in the industry, must be 30 years ago now. Uh, with Audium Factors, so we met there. Um, so that was a few years before I started BCR. But uh, BCR, as I mentioned, started in 1993, and um, our first publication was called Factoring in the UK. 
and that was born out of uh, a need at the time for some in-depth information about the factoring industry um, in the UK. It was still quite a young industry then. And um, I took several months putting that report together. And uh, when I published it, it sold pretty well. And that was the, the start of BCR. Uh, following that publication, we were approached by HMSO, which is uh, at the time was the government publishers, uh, Her Majesty's Stationery Office. And uh, they were quite keen to work with us. And um, we ended up publishing the next two editions of Factoring in the UK through them. So it became an HMSO publication. And uh, we did uh, another couple of publications with them, one on venture capital and one on leasing. And uh, so we worked with HMSO for a couple of years until they were privatised. And at that point, I went back to publishing directly as uh, BCR. So over the next few years, we introduced some new products. Uh, we introduced our online resource, which is now called uh, Trade and Receivables Finance News. And in, I think in 2001, we started doing events and we started with Receivables Finance International, which you mentioned already. So that's been going for uh, just over 20 years. And uh, we've now, well, in, in a normal year, uh, pre-COVID year, should we say, yeah. um, we would be doing six or seven or eight events per year, some in Europe, some in Asia, and some as uh, masterclasses and seminars. So uh, so today, there, there are basically three three strands to the business. Um, we have our events, we have our publications, and we have our online resource, uh, TRF News. And now, as you said earlier, we have built up a very wide network of individuals around the world. These are mainly senior people uh, within the receivables finance sector. And uh, we work with institutions uh, like EBRD, IFC, which is part of the World Bank, um, the ICC, uh, other multilateral development banks. So we're pretty well connected and our focus is still on receivables finance and that's mainly factoring and supply chain finance. Um, supply chain finance has, as you know, sprung up in the last 10 years or so. And we're also dipping into securitization a bit as well and that seems to be growing uh, in interest and expanding uh, in this space. So that's a very brief history um, of BCR and uh, and where we're at now. Brilliant. I think it goes without saying that you've, you know, in that time since 1993, you will have seen a lot of the major shifts within the industry, not just in the UK, but, but globally. Um, I just want to ask you, thinking about that, and we can spring off from this question, what are the three big shifts you think that you've seen in that time, and in particular over the last decade, that have really shaped the way that receivables lenders are working today? Well, I think probably the biggest one, and uh, I think it's the most obvious one as well, is is technology. And I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you, representing <laughs> a technology company, yeah. but I really, really, really do believe that. And I've, I've said this to, to many, many people that, in this sector, we've seen more growth, evolution and development in technology in the last six or seven years than we've seen in the last 60 or 70 years in this sector. So there's been a rapid escalation of that and it, it really has had a big impact and is having a big impact on this sector and, and will be hugely significant in the evolution of this sector. And that could be through 
blockchain. I think the jury's still out on that, but it and digitalization is certainly will have a, a, a major impact moving forward and, and many other aspects of new technologies that, that are coming through. So, so technology is certainly one. Second, I guess, generally speaking, I think the sector is a, attracting larger businesses. So whereas before it was almost exclusively used by SMEs, um, I think now it's still certainly the majority of end users are SMEs, but I think there are more mid-cap size uh, companies using receivables finance. So that's a change. And uh, if I can combine that one with growth as well, in the last 10 years, this sector has seen uh, very substantial growth in terms of volume and numbers of businesses using receivables finance. I'm talking globally now, not just in, in the UK, where in the UK the growth has not been quite at the, uh, at the same level as we'd seen um, going back six, seven or more years ago. And I think the other thing that's worth mentioning out of the three, so we've got technology, we've got uh, large, larger companies and growth. I've kind of combined that one. That's a little bit of a cheat, I suppose. But um, the third one, I think, is that the sector has become much more mainstream. And I've seen, I think we've seen that in a big way in the last uh, four or five years. It's no longer seen as a kind of secondary form of business finance as it was before. I think it's very well known now in the UK and many parts of Europe and in other parts of the world. And it is being recommended as a primary form of business finance um, these days rather than a secondary form of business finance. So rather than banks saying, right, you need an overdraft or you need a term loan, I think uh, very often they'll say you need an invoice finance before they mention the other two. So so that's that's very encouraging for, for the future. And there's still a long way to go. You know, we there are very few markets, I think, that you can say are saturated in this sector. I don't can't think of one, actually. Um, even the more mature markets like the UK, Italy, France, Spain, the US, I don't think any of these markets are saturated. So there is still um, a very significant way to go, I think, in, in this industry in general. And what's interesting to me is that obviously the pace of development changes from country to country. So one country may be more mature in terms of receivables lending than another. I think what's also interesting, and this is you know thinking about fintech and fintech investment, I wonder whether the spotlight is going to uh, move on to receivables lending and working capital lending, you know, business to business-to-business lending. Yeah, well, I didn't mention fintech as one of the three or four major shifts, but, you know, it would be in the top five, definitely. And um, in terms of the spotlight, I think after the banking crisis, 2008-2009, I think the spotlight did shift significantly towards the receivable as an asset class and as a as a basis for, for finance. Because during the banking crisis, a lot of the assets that caused a lot of problems during the banking crisis, that all came to the forefront. And and as a result of that, I think the receivable as an asset got, got also got pushed forward, but in a positive way. And I think all of a sudden, it came to the attention of a lot of people and a lot of sectors uh, where it hadn't before. So it was kind of pushed into the limelight and people saw the receivable as an asset that is uh, pretty much pretty stable 
or let, let's put it another way. They saw receivables finance as um, a form of finance that is not as risky. Um, you know, it's low risk. Uh, it's um, becoming very, very popular. And so we saw uh, investment sectors and bodies looking at receivables finance and the receivable much more than we did before the banking crisis. Uh, and let's face it, you know, the sort of things they were looking at was receivable as uh, a short-term asset, it's self-liquidating, and as I mentioned, it's pretty stable. So in the post-banking uh, crisis period, there was definitely an increase uh, in interest in the receivable as an asset and in receivables finance as a form of business finance. And we saw a lot of growth in that post-banking uh, crisis period. So, and also, as you mentioned, we saw the establishment of the fintech market. And again, that came directly out of the banking crisis. Just after the banking crisis, there was the banks in general were uh, reluctant or even restricted in terms of their lending capacity to SMEs because of the, the new rules that were coming in regulations. Um, as a result of the crisis, Basel, the Basel regulations came in. Um, so that made it difficult for the banks to lend to SMEs particularly. And at the same time, interest rates were coming down and were very low. And it was difficult for investors to find somewhere to put their money where they can get a, a reasonable return. So some uh, smart people uh, saw that and launched a lot of fintech companies, bringing sure. together access to finance for SMEs and at the same time providing good investment returns for investors. All that was in principle, of course, it didn't work out quite that way for for all the fintechs. For some of them, it has, for some it hasn't. But um, but yeah, so, so the rise of the fintechs is another area which we've seen um, in the last 10 years. Absolutely. And I mean, something we're interested in here, obviously, and what we do at Dance Race, just, just digging into that a little bit further. What do you think we can learn then about those key shifts? So we saw what happened post-2008 you know, in, increased interest in receivables as an asset class, uh, interest in receivables as a business service from for, for clients. Do you think that's going to happen again? I think it won't be the same, um, but there will be things that will come out of this current crisis which will benefit the sector, I think. I think we will see, as we saw coming out of the banking crisis, 2008, 2009, I think we'll see a renewed demand for receivables finance because as we come out of the crisis working capital will come under pressure as businesses get back into the swing of things and their sales start to increase and they're restocking working capital will come under pressure and uh, there will be a greater need for working capital finance so i suspect these some nice increases in volume as we come out of um, our current position having said that i'm not quite sure what the current position position is at the moment because I'm getting mixed reports about volumes in general. I speak to some people and they say, yeah, generally there's a reduction in volumes in factoring uh, at the moment, which one you know, might have expected and predicted. But on the other hand, I was speaking to uh, one of the major banks in supply chain finance a couple of days ago, and they're extremely busy at the moment. So... Uh, I'm not quite sure what the overall picture is at the moment, but um, it could be that it's not nearly as, as bad as it was during the banking crisis, where we saw very 
significant reductions in volume for a couple of years over that 2008-2009 period. That, that mixed picture is definitely something that is reflected in the conversations I'm having as well. Um, I wouldn't be so bold as to put my, my sort of opinion behind whether the volumes are going up or down. I think the fintechs have been a, a bit of a wake-up wake call um, for the more traditional providers within receivables finance, particularly factoring. And there's been more of a realisation that what clients want is they want quick and easy access to finance. And what they don't want is contracts where they're tied in for long periods. What they don't want is minimum annual fees. They want a quick process in terms of getting access to finance. In other words, the take-on process needs to be quick. And uh, ideally, they want to dip in and, and dip out and not necessarily necessarily be tied in on a whole turnover basis. And the other thing I think that's come out of it, and um, and this has been a bit of a learning curve, not only for the traditional providers, uh, and that's primarily the banks, but also for the fintechs. I think the fintechs were, to a large extent, a, a bit too optimistic about the disruptive what they thought was going to be the disruptive nature of what they were offering. And it hasn't turned out to be the case um, to a large extent. And I think what the fintechs are now looking at, and I think what the banks are beginning to realise now as well, is that perhaps the ideal way forward is, is a form of collaboration. So the banks have the status and credibility, which is something the fintechs have always lacked, and that's been something which has been a problem for them in terms of expansion. The fintechs have um, access to very speed, speedy development of technology and new technology, and you know it would take the banks a lot longer to develop some of this, and, and that's all beginning to be realised in the last two, three years. So I, I think we'll see a lot more coll- collaboration between the fintechs and the banks moving forward. Uh, because they've they've both got very good bits to add together to create some some decent synergy. I think that's music to my ears because that's uh, that's what we do here at Dance Race. I think the other thing that of course banks have that the fintechs don't have is the capital to lend. Do you think then that the the working capital lenders are are li- uh, kind of responding positively? What has their response been? Do you think over the last six months, particularly with regards to the COVID pandemic? It's difficult for them because, on the one hand, they're under pressure to support SMEs, and and I think they're being a lot more supportive than they used to be. If you look back at the previous crisis, and even more so the crisis before that, which wasn't such a deep crisis, but 1990-91, the banks were just pulling the rugs from underneath SMEs overnight, very often. Uh, and facilities were just being withdrawn without any warning. And it really caused a lot of problems for SMEs. And the banks were looked at, being looked at very negatively by everybody, um, including the government. And there wasn't so much a repeat of that in the banking crisis 2008-2009. But this crisis, you know, there, there's a lot of support from the government, of course, which wasn't there in previous crises. So... Yeah, that that's that's helping the whole position uh, very significantly. And the other thing to bear in mind is that the the banks themselves uh, are much better prepared to provide support and to try and provide finance to businesses because they're much better capitalised because of the regulations that came out 
as a result of the banking crisis. So this crisis is is quite different to uh, previous crises um, in that respect. And, um, you know, thankfully, uh, those regulations came in, those Basel regulations came in. And I think a lot of people will be saying, well, you know, the regulators have been proved to be right because there was a lot of criticism after the banking crisis. And a lot of people were saying that the regulators had, had gone too far the other way in terms of the uh, extent of, of regulation. But um, this current situation is certainly an argument in, in their favour. And what do you see lenders investing in right now in order to prepare themselves and deal with the COVID crisis? Right. Is that a loaded question, perhaps? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. No, I'm interested. I'm not. I'm not asking you to talk about uh, technology there. Um, it could be, well, you know, operationally. It could be more people yeah. on the ground, um, because this is the thing. I think while we are technologists here at Dance Race, and this is something that Elliot spoke about on the panel at Arfix back in March, we we're absolutely aware of the importance of people for good lending. So, as, how how has that played out over the last six months? Well, certainly this crisis and the last crisis have been huge drivers in the use and and development of of technology so i think there'll be a drive towards efficiency to lower costs you know there are other factors coming in which are causing that as well like the you know the, the trade wars and and the the trend towards deglobalization that's driving automation um, as well. Uh, you know, banks banks want to do their best, uh, and, and finance providers in general want to do their best to to do what they can to support businesses. Because at the end of the day, they don't, they don't want to lose these these businesses. They want them to come out the other side of this crisis and stay as clients for for a long time. So I I think you know, and on the other side of that, of course, they've got to, they've got to look at the risk situation and the risk environment and so they've got that difficult difficult balance to kind of uh, look at but you know what they are looking for is 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 for technology to help with the risk management position and and also looking for ways that they can make their their products more efficient but you know that's all perhaps medium and longer term stuff in in the immediate future you know, they've got to watch out for things like fraud, which is quite likely, if not already, to be rearing its ugly head. As businesses come under more pressure, they, you know, the, the temptation to raise invoices before goods or services have been delivered is, is, is getting stronger all the time, or will be. You know, we haven't seen the worst of this situation yet, I suspect. And government support is is being extended and extended, but the level of support is is gradually getting weaker. And when we get to the early part of next year, uh, I'm not sure when. Can't remember when the scheme ends. I think it's uh, current scheme anyway. Ends I think in April. If the COVID situation hasn't been dramatically resolved and reduced by then, that's when we're going to have quite a serious situation on our hands. And the receivables finance providers uh, are, are going to be very concerned about what happens at that point. Sure. So earlier on in the conversation, you know, you suggested that the outlook was was largely good for for lenders. Would you say that actually it's more of a mixed bag? You know, some of these 
more structural challenges, they've got to be addressed in order for lenders to take advantage or survive and, and grow from this pandemic. Yeah, I think so. I mean, longer term, yes, there's there's a very good outlook for this sector. But over the next few months, it, it, it could well be very tough going. And uh, we don't know, of course, uh, how things are going to pan out. We can only hope that uh, things will get better, uh, you know, hopefully when the weather gets warmer and uh, maybe uh, we'll have a, um, not an antidote, what's the word? A vaccine. Uh, vaccine, thank you. <laughs> we'll have a vaccine uh, fairly soon. But until we're more sure about um, how things uh, are going to play out, I think providers are going to be looking at their systems. Um, They're going to be looking to make sure they are maximizing efficiency, keeping their overheads down, making sure that their staffing levels are running as efficiently as possible, and uh, making sure that um, their risk management procedures are as tight as possible because they've got to be ready uh, for some very difficult times ahead, which which may or may not come, but they certainly may come. Sure. Well, look, I want to shift the conversation on now. I think everyone's, you know, a lot of people, we've been talking about COVID for a long time, certainly as a sector. Um, I want to delve into community and network um, within the sector. What has the COVID crisis meant for BCR publishing? Well, as as a small business, uh, we've had to be very careful about our approach to things. You know, a lot of things I mentioned that uh, factors uh, uh, have to be pay heed to uh, apply, applies to us. You know, we have to try and maximise efficiency. We have to um, keep an eye on overheads and uh, uh, and make sure we're we're running very um, effectively and efficiently. But in terms of community. You know, we've got a very uh, loyal customer base um, and, uh, you know, as we talked about uh, earlier on, our network is very strong and we've had a very strong network for a very long time. And it's not that difficult for us to keep conversations going and discussions and to keep in touch with people through uh, use of um, the technologies technologies that everybody's using now, Zoom and WebEx and the rest of them. What is a bit more difficult is when we're talking to potential new clients. And uh, what we would normally do is we'd have a discussion over the phone. And then if they weren't too far away, we would arrange a, a physical meeting. And of course, we can't do that now. So in terms of new clients and new business, it's a bit more difficult. And one has to do one's best to try and do that online via video calls but it's not ideal so but overall we're, we're you know we're moving forward and um, and keeping things going brilliant and in terms of um, your events agenda your events program you've made some changes there as well I can see yeah we've had to cut back generally on the number of events we're doing at the moment and we're focusing on our main events the next one that we've got coming up is our supply chain finance summit at the end of January Sorry, that's not the next one coming up. We are doing a fraud masterclass in December. And because, as I mentioned, you know, we, we, we see this as quite timely and we see the risk of fraud increasing um, in the coming months. But in terms of our regular events, uh, the next one is the end of January, our Supply Chain Finance Summit. And we will be doing that as a virtual event. We've been doing that event for about 10 years now. And so this will be the first time 
we're doing is a virtual event and that's purely because of covid and then the next event after that will be our receivables finance international event uh, which you attended last time and we don't know whether that's going to be a virtual event or a physical event we normally do that in march but we're pushing it back to the end of april beginning of may we haven't quite fixed the date yet but we're pushing it back in the hope that we can do it as a physical event but we are uh, preparing ourselves um, to do one or the other so we're pre preparing preparing for both scenarios effectively but yeah, those that we have been impacted quite significantly by the situation and a virtual event will, will never replace fully a physical event. There are lots and lots of advantages of uh, a physical event over a virtual event, which may not be obvious to everybody at the moment, but I think they'll become more obvious the longer the situation goes on for. I'd agree with that. I think the building relationships there um, are particularly valuable and we, we are going to be appearing again at RFIX next year um, and we'll also be attending the Supply Chain Summit as well. Just uh, delving into, you know, thinking about networking, community and networking is particularly important within um, the world of working capital. It's very close knit. Why do you think that is? Well, that's a difficult one, but as we spoke earlier on, it's it's certainly a noticeable one. I don't know is the answer, but I would I would guess it may be due to the fact that uh, the receivables finance sector is still a fairly young industry. You know, it's been around in the UK since, well, the 60s, really. And even though that seems like a long time ago, that does, compared to other forms of finance, that still makes it a fairly young industry. And I think because of that, and because the way it's been evolving quite rapidly, much more than other finance sectors, that kind of a environment encourages strongly discussion and debate and exchange of ideas. And you know, an awful lot of that comes from, from meeting people. A lot, an awful lot of that comes from meeting people at, at conferences. And people are prepared to talk and, as I mentioned, exchange ideas. And in, conference type, uh, in a conference-type environment, um, it's much easier to do that. I remember in the early days of BCR, when we used to do a survey, uh, we surveyed the UK factoring industry and used to ask them for figures for turnover and volume and growth and, uh, and, and also pricing for their products. And it was much easier to survey the factoring industry than it was to survey the venture capital and leasing industry, which we were also doing at the time. But the UK factoring sector people were much more forthcoming than the other sectors leasing and venture capital. As I say, I'm not quite sure why that is, uh, but I'm assuming uh, that it might be because uh, it's, um, as I say, a young, developing and growing sector with, with generally with younger people in and uh, who are more just more open about things. So uh, it was quite refreshing and, um, and it's still there. It's still there, I think. I definitely agree with it. I mean, that's been my experience moving from other sectors into receivables finances i've been really pleasantly surprised by how generous people are with their time with sharing their knowledge and it, and it is specialist knowledge what strikes me as well is i think people are driven by the the, the fact that done the right way working capital is you know it can be quite a benevolent type of lending because you're you're getting liquidity into businesses based on their you know their current performance and and whatnot. So I think that for me is part of what drives it as well. Certainly that's what attracted me into the sector, I would say. Yeah. And also, you know, for small businesses, you don't need a strong balance sheet to 
to get receivables finance. And, um, you know, for, for small businesses, for many of them, the main asset they have is their receivables. And to have something that, to have a, a form of finance that can grow with sales of a business, which factoring does, is is such an advantage. You know, it's, it may not necessarily be the cheapest form of finance, but if you're a, a small business, a young business, and you're in a growth phase, you need that working capital. And you can't you can't get it to the extent to the same extent from from other forms of finance, um, whether that be a term loan or a, an overdraft, or um, whether it's equity finance. You know, equity is 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 the last form of finance that most small businesses choose. So yeah, there are still lots of advantages for for factoring. And on a wider basis, you know, further out beyond the UK and maybe beyond Europe, there's still a big need for education. There's still a lot of markets out there which don't really know much at all about factoring or receivables finance in general. And that's all also beginning to change. And there are lots of um, bodies out there that are trying to do something about that, uh, like FCI, like EBRD and other development banks, Afrexim Bank. So there is a big move globally still to to educate people about the benefits of receivables finance and you're going to be very well positioned to help them i'm sure right at the, uh, the forefront of that yeah I, I hope so uh and like to think so uh, uh and it's also a great opportunity for technology companies to to also take advantage of that so you know we're we are a supplier to this sector as you are and uh, i think for suppliers to this sector you know it's 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 going to be good times ahead and uh, the you know the benefits that we've seen in the past will continue and may well accelerate for suppliers to the sector. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael. If you'd like to find out more about BCR Publishing, please go to bcrpub.com. And for more conversations on lending, finance and technology, please subscribe to The Ledger in your preferred podcast player. From all of us here at Dance Race, thanks for listening.